Thanks for downloading the UW Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and we're going live into Georgia, USA with Pierre Eyre, who is the Senior Marketing Manager responsible for leading global communications for the GSMA Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation Program. Uh, but Kiel is also a Huffington Post contributor, World Economic Forum Global Shaper and TEDx speaker, and really great to have a chat about her career and her time at UWA. But uh, yeah, Kiel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. First things first, how is everything there in Georgia? Uh, you know, not too many people uh, who do travel the world and even travel to the United States. Georgia is not generally on their on their to-do list. Can you tell us uh, what it's like to, to live in Georgia? Sure. Um, I think, so for context as well, I'm half American, which is the reason kind of my husband and I ended up living here. And I think it's different kind of growing up in Australia, which I did, my mom's Australian, and kind of thinking about the US because I think we have a very homogenized view of the country and we tend to think of it as like majority politics or kind of headlines, which is natural when we see foreign countries like stereotyping certain things. Um, And because America is such a dominant pop culture presence, I think a lot of people kind of feel like they're more familiar with the country than they are. At least I did, and I am American. (laughs) So I kind of get that vibe from a lot of my Australian family and friends too. And when you move to the South, people have this kind of conception of what that means it's very rooted in history it's about civil rights it's about slavery like it's a often a very like racist stereotype um and i'm half african-american so obviously like wouldn't naturally gravitate to some place that i found personally very racist um but yeah surprisingly and something that i didn't realize before i moved here is that atlanta really is a hub of particularly black american culture um and colloquially it can known by a lot of people as the black mecca of america so a lot of black professionals are moving to the city it's a place where black people really thrive um not that we don't have problems but there's a lot less kind of racial tension and inequality than the rest of america so like for me it's a really ideal place to be it's kind of the america that i would want to live in more so than you know these horrible stereotypes of america that can be very real in many places especially when they're not very diverse um so i've had an amazing time living here it's a very vibrant kind of cultural hub and it's full of really interesting people who are extremely unpretentious um you just meet people and they just end up doing something really cool like in the entertainment industry or they've had a film in tribeca film festival and like they're just really humble about it which is the opposite of my experience living in new york so i really love living in it so let's go back to your, your time at UWA and, you know, your first step foot on UWA campus at the age of 17. Do you remember your first day walking on to the UWA campus? Um, I mean, I'd been to campus for other things. I think like a lot of kind of primary school, high school kids, I'd come for like debating contests or some stuff that I'd done when I was younger. And I always loved the campus and it just felt like it was this goal I had and it was really surreal to finally be in that place and as well just be an adult and be independent intellectually I really didn't like kind of the forced conformity of high school um I know some people deal with it a lot better but even just you know expressing yourself naturally wearing the clothes you want to wear just doing things you're interested in it was a really amazing liberating and freeing time for me I really appreciated the opportunity and did you have any set goals, aspirations, a dream job during your time at UW as well? Or did you kind of just evolve as the years went on? So I really wanted to do anthropology since I was about 14. 
um, which I know is a strange thing for a younger teenager to want to do. It's a very niche field as well. But I, my mom is a choreographer, so she did a lot of work in different countries in Asia, and I traveled a lot when I was young. Um, and being obviously biracial and bicultural, I've just had a lot of intercultural awareness. So I was extremely interested in pursuing anthropological study, looking at sociology as well, looking at social norms, looking at ways of being that aren't necessarily strictly imposed by context. So I was like, iTunes U is still something that exists, but iTunes University had all of these courses and free courseware back before, you know, like edX and all of these other offerings were out there. So I was doing anthropology courses while I was in high school because I was so excited to finally go and study anthropology. So when I got to UWA, it was amazing to be engaging with that academically and to meet people who'd done all this really interesting ethnography. And I, at that time, wanted to be an academic because I guess also growing up in Perth and not having the professional experience that I have now, my mind wasn't very open to all the different kinds of careers that I could have. And when I was presented with all the traditional kind of paths, as I'd call them, uh, none of them appealed to me. So I thought (laughs) the only way that I could have a job I wanted to have was to, you know, be an anthropologist, academic, writing books and just talking about stuff. So that's what I saw for myself then. Uh, also, but uh, during your studies, life did throw you with curveballs. Are you able to tell us about kind of what happened there, especially with your mum and, uh, you know, what, what were the sacrifices you had to make to, to support your family at such a young age? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't think the story is particularly unique to me because a lot of people from lower income or single parent households have to do heavy lifting. That's just how life is. So I've been working since I was 14. I've been working full time since I was maybe 17, 18, because I mean, that's also one thing I really appreciated about university is the flexibility. And I would always be either studying or working or doing different stuff. But when I was 20, my mom got melanoma, like stage four melanoma, and she had to have part of her spine removed. And at one point we didn't know if she was going to survive. So to pay the mortgage basically, and just keep everything afloat, I had to prioritize work over study, um, which was a not so much a difficult choice to make, to be honest, because I didn't really see an alternative. Um, and I managed to find alternative methods anyway and graduate on time, which is something else I'm very grateful to UWA for, because I managed to do three full-time semesters on campus before all of this stuff happened. So I finished by doing a couple of units that started so the contact hours started at 5 p.m. So I'd be coming straight from work. I'd leave work a little bit early in Victoria Park. I would drive over, do my units. I would do open universities online um, and get credits uh, transferred to my degree. So the student support offices and services at UWA were absolutely amazing to make sure that I could still graduate on time, even though I couldn't physically be on campus during business hours. That, that's amazing. I mean, you know, you're saying before that, you know, you, it's not really a common story, but did you have any colleagues, did you have any classmates that uh, had to do had to go through a similar situation to you or were you kind of like the only person, I guess, in your, in your, your own personal bubble? Um, I suppose I mean that needing to work isn't unique, but I think yeah. maybe trying to still graduate on time isn't something <laughs> most people want to take on board. Um, but for me, I really wanted to like leave Australia, leave Perth and go and do all this other stuff that I wanted to do. And I just didn't feel like 
this had to be a reason that would stop. And I think in that time I was so ultra motivated in a way that I don't really have to be now, I would say. Um, and I just had a lot of energy that I absolutely don't have as an older person, but I really wanted to just push myself and work as hard as I possibly could to just do everything that I could with the energy that I had at the time. And I guess I also perceived it kind of like interval training is the way I think about it now, because I think there are times in life where, you know, it's good to go hard and push, but that's not sustainable. And I never really saw it as being something long-term. So having those points, like, you know, I need to get through these things and then I won't have to do that later because I've already done it. It's kind of the attitude I've taken to what I've done because I have studied and worked full-time basically my whole academic life, which wasn't a walk in the park, but I'm grateful that I did it now. Well, energy is something that you had an abundance of well, your, your time at UWA and you do have a clear passion for making a difference. You did triathlons to fundraise for Melanoma WA, you managed communications for urban refugees, but you also co-founded Perth Soup, which is modelled from Detroit Soup in the USA. Uh, can you explain to listeners what is Perth Soup and why did you choose to found such an amazing initiative? Um, sure. So my then boyfriend, now husband, actually was the one who initially became interested in this concept. So he traveled around the US um, and is an urban planner and urban designer. So he was really fascinated with the cultural kind of resurgence that was happening in Detroit, which is a city that underwent major decline and obviously went bankrupt and there's a lot of poverty and devastation there. And he visited and actually found that community was really well connected, really resilient, really supported each other in ways where they weren't relying on government or outside intervention and just took things into their own hands and when he came back and was explaining this to me it just seemed like something amazing that we could do in Perth because at that time especially I think the innovate the social innovation ecosystem was quite nascent and getting people to just get out and meet people who are trying to do cool things and support them was something people really valued actually so it was great to be able to do that Um, and obviously to contextualize Perth Soup we founded in October 2014 and then became an incorporated not-for-profit where we ran community dinners at Space Cubed in the city. So people would come and make a $10 donation at the door and then we'd share soup and people would talk and then you would hear pitches from four different people with an idea, basically, that want to benefit the city. So they would speak for four minutes and then answer four questions. And then everybody who came in and donated their $10 gets a vote. We all put our votes in and whoever gets the most votes takes the money. So it wasn't like a big grant accountability thing. It's, Hey, we support you. We think this idea is cool. You know, here's the money. (laughs) Like (laughs) then people would come back and let us know what they did and kind of, you know, how that helped them. And also just the connections that people formed were really meaningful. Um, And it was really great because initially as well, um, the idea it's as simple as it is, just really appeals to a lot of people. And Detroit Soup really helped other cities to kind of replicate that model because it works. So they helped us really get set up. And then we helped create a lot of neighborhood soups and supported them as much as we could, like in Victoria Park, different areas, like neighborhood level. And like ABC were interested. They published some pieces about it. And the first grantee we had, who was an urban beekeeper, and yeah, it just grew and it still exists from what I hear, even though I don't live in Perth. Um, so it's just great to, you know, see the community support each other and just want to come together and make Perth a better place. Now, you did all this 
while studying to learn French and Arabic, spent three hours a week volunteering with two refugee children, all while working and caring for your mum who's recovering from your spinal surgery, as you said before. How is that possible? You, your ability to do all this, to manage your time, it, it's, I'm amazed by it. How, how was it possible? <laughs> Honestly, like at the time, I just thought it was like I would plan all of my time. Sounds kind of obsessive now, but I mean, it worked. <laughs> I would plan, <laughs> I would relax, but I would plan relaxing. Like I would block out all of my time and it was all accounted for. And it just helped me really realize how much you can get out of a day. And I just never felt like time was something that limited me. Um, now, though, like as I said, being almost a decade older, I I couldn't do that. Like it also doesn't appeal to me. But at the time, it was kind of what I felt I needed to do to just maximize as much as I felt I could give and as much as I felt I could do, and just to be, I guess, as close to the person I wanted to be as I could. Um, and I also had some very unrealistic expectations for how much I wanted to achieve at a young age. I don't know why, but I just felt like there's this imaginary line in my head. And if I went over that age, like it would be too late. And now obviously as I'm getting closer to 30, it's not, that's not how it is. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> grown up but, in that sense, but I'm grateful for everything I did, you know, my late teens and early twenties that got me to this point. I think we're all like that when you, when you get yeah, that such a young age and you do, you do see that line. And I think, you know, when you're in your, you know, your late teens, early twenties and you meet someone in their early thirties, you do, still consider them, I guess, quite old. And then also when you get close to that age, you're like, oh, they weren't that old. And, you know, there isn't this line. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm always just curious where us as people, why we put that, that line. Do you have any idea why we, we set that line to ourselves? I think for me, I mean, I know a lot of people obviously do this for different reasons. I have a lot of friends who have turned 30 and went through a massive 30 anxiety, which is a funny thing that, but it's just imaginary. It's a number, but people feel like, because like you said, they had this idea of who they would be by that point in time. If any of the little factors don't align with that, the most calm, confident, successful people I know have gone through this like extreme anxiety. And I'm hoping like it might happen to me, but I'm hoping I can stay like level-headed and meditate. Um, but the, for me as well, a quite a tangible line was that I really wanted a road scholarship when I was young. And it's funny thinking back on that now, because I think it just felt like a very elite goal. And it felt like something that could really motivate me because it just sounds fancy to be straight up. Like I, <laughs> I decided that that's something I wanted when I was too young to really comprehend what it meant or like what it would have as an implication on my life. And so like to apply, you had to be under 24. So I was thinking, okay, I need to volunteer, I need to like be good at sport and I need to do all these things and I, I'm not under 24, it's not going to count. And then, you know, when I did turn 24, I was actually over it by then and it was fine. And it was just, I think part of the reason I packed so much in was this like imaginary deadline um, that ended up not really having any significance in my life. But <laughs> yeah. There you go. Now, let's talk about your current role. You're the senior marketing manager responsible for leading global communications for GSMA Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation Program in Atlanta, Georgia. Can you explain to listeners what is GSMA and what does your job entail? Sure. So the GSMA is a really hard organization to fully explain. I will give the corporate line first and then I can explain a little bit more about the many things that we do. But essentially we represent the interests of mobile operators worldwide. So we 
Unite more than 750 mobile network operators with almost 400 companies in the broader mobile ecosystem. So that's people like handset and device makers, software companies, equipment providers, internet companies, basically anyone interfacing with mobile technology in any capacity. And this is in most countries in the world. Um, we also produce events, which is a funny kind of thing to throw in there, but we do Mobile World Congress, which is the the, the mobile event globally and we hold that in Barcelona every year we have an American event in Los Angeles we have an event in Shanghai that's getting more and more popular and then we run a mobile 360 series of events in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and other regions so <clears throat> to give a sense of size as well for people who won't be familiar we get 110,000 people in Barcelona for this event and it's largely sea level people we get ministers we get um, we had Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General or the Under Secretary General of the UN. Um, we get like high level representation. I hosted the Assistant Secretary General of the UN um, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. So it's a very strange kind of power that the GSMA has to convene all of these people around the power and promise of technology. But something that we do that's really interesting is really work on how to make the world a better place. Um, and we have so many experts working on this from so many different angles, but the department that I work in drives innovation and digital technology to reduce inequalities in our world. But we do that through so many initiatives. We do assistive technology, looking at disability and inclusion. We look at connectivity in rural areas. We look at gender gap in women. We look at identity related services, startups in Africa and Asia mobile and utilities, the entire mobile money ecosystem, health, like so many different verticals. And the one that I'm working on now that I lead marketing communications for, as you said, is our humanitarian innovation initiative. So we work with people like UNOCHA that I mentioned, um, UNHCR, we work with World Food Program, we work with nonprofits and different companies. We've looked at disaster response programs with Google. We just do a lot of stuff <laughs> and it's a lot, but it's really, really exciting because it's at such a global level with so many people who are really on the cutting edge of like, how can you, how far can you push technology to improve people's lives? Um, and I really had no idea about any of this stuff, which I think most people don't until I got really deeply involved in it, but it's a really exciting field to be a part of because it changes so quickly as well. Yeah, so how did you come to work for GSMA? Like, were you, were you headhunted? Was the job advertised? How did that all come about? Um, I was really, so after completing my BA and my honours, I did a couple of postgrad, a couple of postgrad things, but I did some pro bono refugee law and I did that at NU. Um, but I did my master's in applied anthropology and participatory development, and I specialized for my thesis in humanitarian innovation. So as part of that project, I'd been landscaping kind of new things that are happening in the humanitarian space. How are they working? What's not working? Kind of what are the dangers in that? What are the ethics and experimentation? Um, so I was super interested in this field, um, very specifically in the humanitarian innovation side. Um, and then I started a project that was looking at uh, the, the power of mobile specifically in East Africa because when I was a lot younger, like 18, I lived in Malawi for three months um, teaching science at a boarding school and it was amazing as someone from Perth who had a really stereotypical idea of what Africa, Africa, like the whole continent is, I like I really had no clue because everywhere I was you had mobile reception like even in tiny remote villages 
there was always somebody selling mobile phone credit, like people were extremely connected. Um, and so I kind of learned about the power of mobile specifically in most of the developing world at that time. So it's something that I really had in mind for a long time. Um, and then when I moved to London, I was basically just looking for a new opportunity from another job that I'd had. And this kind of fell in my lap at the perfect time. So I had a housemate whose friend worked at the GSMA. And then I was like, what's that? And I looked at what they do and realized how aligned it was with my own values. And they kind of saw the benefit in me too, because I was recruited in like a week, which is apparently unheard of. Like we take a very long time to recruit people, but it just worked out. It was perfect timing for me and it was great synergy. And I've been with the GSMA for three years and I have no real intention of leaving. So yeah, I'm really happy. Now it's interesting. No one really connects mobile phones as making a difference in the community. Is that, is that something that's being uh, somewhat quite difficult to explain to people? Um, <clears throat> I think people who work in like the development, I say with air quotes for, you know, people who can't see my hands, but people who work in the development sector, I don't think this is something that's not obvious anymore. Like there was a time when it was a newer concept, but because mobile is such an integral technology, like most people didn't have laptops or Wi-Fi, like the first entry point into accessing the internet or technology in the way that we do in Western and developed countries is through mobile. So it's a gateway to all of the other services that you might want to provide. So the things people use mobile for are like endless. Um, we do a lot of research with different refugee populations and looking at how people who've been disconnected from family can like mobilize, can use financial services, can self like educate because, you know, Google might seem trivial to us, but if you've been isolated, you know, for 20 years in a camp and then suddenly there's connectivity and you have a phone and you can just seek information for yourself, you can look at the political situation in the country that you were displaced from. You can learn about the limitless like knowledge that exists in the world and just, you know, acquire that for yourself. So it's amazing to see all of the things that mobile can do because it is a gateway to essentially everything um, in a lot of, well, a, a huge proportion of the world, actually. Um, so it's amazing, at least through our work, to see all of the nuance in that and how we can enable it and facilitate it. Yeah, it's funny you say it took the gateway because I think, you know, here in Australia, we definitely take those things for granted. Uh, but I want to touch on your, your team. Uh, your team is based globally, uh, London, Sri Lanka, Nairobi. What is it like working with a global based team and you know what are the positives but also the challenges of working with with a global team yeah so i'm very lucky because i did work in london for almost two years before i moved to atlanta um because i'm the only one in my team who's out in the u.s and it largely was a visa thing because i am half american uh, my uk visa was expiring i had the tf5 like you know the working holiday visa most australians get in london <laughs> so i had to leave um but i could keep my job and basically work from atlanta um so i have those connections and i think working remotely is a lot easier when you know the people that you work with really well i think if i'd come into the situation it would be potentially quite different um but also because i do travel a lot and i have touch points with people so i go to london every month or two I have good relationships with colleagues there. We all meet in London once or twice a year for different kind of like team building exercises and events. Um, we travel to 
my work has taken me to India for events, um, Rwanda, Tanzania, Barcelona every year. So it's funny, but I see the same people in all of these places, even from partner organizations like UN agencies or NGOs that we work with. So even if I'm physically separate from them, most of the time we have enough kind of face-to-face -face connection that it's easy to maintain that distance as well. Um, and I actually really love working <laughs> separately because it makes it a lot easier to manage your own time when you don't always have people around you. That's a personality thing, but I, <laughs> someone who absolutely <laughs> loves like the autonomy and the time zone buffer because most of my colleagues are offline when it's like 1 p.m. for me so I can actually get stuff done in the afternoon, which has been amazing. It's been a game changer. <laughs> now you talked about a lot, of, a lot of the places you visit for work. Now is, is it all work or is, it, is there any opportunities for you to do some sightseeing in these regions? Because I know there's a lot of people that do travel for work and everyone looks as it, wow, that must be amazing. But you know, it's basically airport airport to hotel for a lot of people what is it like for you when you're traveling um, it depends on how much notice we get so i actually have pretty amazing corporate benefits um so we travel business class when we travel long haul wow and we can oh, exactly well step one that's fantastic especially in like the development kind of space um but we can optionally downgrade and bring someone with us as well if we choose to fly economy so I went to Tanzania for a month with my husband and we like went to Zanzibar and we worked on a project that we were both doing in Dar es Salaam. Um, so there are like lots of ways that it can definitely be to that advantage. I mean, after that, when I went to India for work, it was the first time I'd visited. So I took time afterwards to just travel around on my own. But yeah, I mean, my organization is great with allowing us that flexibility and but they also really prioritize family and home life. And that that's part of why there's usually an option to bring your partner or like significant other or people who are close to you because the travel can get quite grating. Um, but it's good. Like there, there are a lot of ways to find balance because we have so much flexibility. Now, one, one thing as well that you do, you're also a Huffington Post contributor as well as a TEDx speaker. Did you pursue these opportunities? Because I think, you know, during your time at UWA, you were pursuing a lot of stuff. There was this, you know, imaginary line you're going for. So were you pursuing these opportunities or were they opportunities that were presented to you? So with the TEDx opportunity that came through Perth Soup, so in Bunbury, when they set up their soup, um, the people who were organising that were also organising the independently run TEDx event. So they reached out to us about coming down and doing a talk. So that was great because we got to kind of spread the word of post soup and sell the value. But when you follow the TED method, um, they're quite specific and coach you in how to tell a story. So um, for me, that became kind of vulnerable where I was sharing a lot of my personal story, but also why that fed into kind of starting post soup and the significance and the value of post soup for communities. And with Huffington Post, um, someone I knew was a contributor and you could, well, back in the day, because HuffPost was restructured quite a lot, but you could invite other people to join uh, the contributor platform. And then after a limited run of like posting some articles, the editors would give you more autonomy if they felt like you were putting things out that were on brand. Um, so I started by kind of writing some very serious stuff for their political vertical when I was doing refugee policy work and then ended up really sharing like personal <laughs> blogging things when I was trying to challenge myself to write more 
I was doing a project where I was trying to put out a memoir every Wednesday um, and just dive into something that made me feel quite vulnerable and articulated in a way that made sense. Um, and some of those posts were actually quite successful on HuffPost. I wrote one about why I eventually decided PhD wasn't for me, um, which got quite a lot of clicks. And then now there are some things I said in that that maybe I wouldn't have said if I knew someone <laughs> would see it. Um, but yeah, it was they're mostly just through people and networks and kind of just getting out there and talking about stuff. <laughs> yeah, how, how important is your network? Because I think you've worked for some amazing organizations. You've met some amazing people. How do you manage such a diverse network of yours? Yeah, so I, I'm somebody who like has a very limited tolerance for superficial things. Not that I want to be having really heavy conversations all the time, but I really value people who have values that are similar to mine that really care about creating impact, that care about the work they're doing. Um, and I tend to just value those relationships and put time into them. So if I can support somebody in something they're doing that I think is amazing, I will do that and like vice versa. So I have a lot of friends who are both like personal friends but professional contact type friends who work on all kinds of things around the world and I also am someone who puts a lot of energy into friendships so I don't like to have too many friendships I like to have friendships that I'm willing to maintain so even though I have friends really all over the world who are completely not in the same time zone as me I have a my iPhone I have a world list of like 12 cities that my friends are in so I can check what time it is when I'm trying to like call people um but yeah I think just leading from that place of like passion and values and just being open and supportive kind of I attract friends who are the same so we take care of each other like emotionally but also professionally I think that's really good advice in regards to checking the time zone because <laughs> I've got quite a few mates that seem to forget what time it is in the US and it is in here here in Perth so I'm going to have to pass that on. <laughs> pass <it> on. <laughs> now, I want to get into your volunteering, go back a little bit. How important was volunteering to you? And do you believe that volunteering paved the way for your career? And is it, did it give you that opportunity to make a difference in your community? Yeah, so I think, again, it's this cross-cultural thing where it's a little bit American maybe to assume that to get the skills and experience you want, you shouldn't always be paid. I think in Australia, obviously, we had such a strong economy and people really want to be valued for their time, which is the polar opposite of America, where people are exploited and often work for free for like years if you want to get into a career. And then it means only, you know, very privileged people have the opportunity to do that. Neither one, I think, is perfect. Um, and mm. I found a happy medium where if I wanted to learn about something, I was going to go and learn about it. And if you're willing to put in the time, listen and learn to achieve something and do something and be proactive people usually say yes so whether it was a field that i wanted to learn about or something that i wanted to do i would just go and do it and not expect anything in return um, and that's how i built a lot of the professional skills that then gave me those paid opportunities because you can't really get in the door with nothing um as i think a lot of people realize as well well do you think that a lot of people are expecting a lot of things in return when they volunteer they you know they could expect to, let's use Australia as an example, and someone, you know, volunteers for, for a month or two and they're expecting, you know, a job lined up straight after. Do you think there's too much expectation? I just think it's a hard thing to 
even really know when it's experience you don't already have. So when I say volunteering as well, I'm talking about kind of longer term professional style volunteering where you're giving mm. skills. I do also think there's a limit to that. So if you're doing something that someone could be paid for and you're performing at the right standard, like obviously there's a line you need to draw in the sand where you value your skills enough to not accept that if you're not comfortable. But at the same time, when you are learning or you're not, you know, as developed or skilled as somebody who might be employed, I think it's just the right balance between understanding, you know, when you are gaining something and you're serving a cause that you care about, then maybe it's okay to do this for a certain period of time. But I also think clear expectations are really critical on both sides around how much they expect of you, how many hours you're doing, like mm. what you're promising to deliver. Um, and that's a lesson that I learned the hard way, but <laughs> like when I was younger, but really making those commitments clear about how much you can and can't do because when you're just, kind of jumping in and you're keen and it's undefined it can be really hard to find those limits um but i would encourage anybody who like is interested in something but doesn't necessarily have the requisite skills or experience to just go in and make an offer of giving your time and just make it really clearly defined because there's nothing wrong with both sides benefiting like you can get experience and skills and knowledge out of it and they are getting your time and as long as you're you're being <laughs> you are showing initiative and not actually demanding of their time because I think also a mistake some people make is expecting people to guide you and yeah. sometimes that takes a lot more energy than I think kind of younger people or less experienced people realize as well yeah that's some really good advice and especially from the, the guiding standpoint but uh, I'm just curious did you ever have a mentor or do you currently have a, a mentor I'm not in like a formal sense I think there are a lot of different people in my life who I really respect who I've taken amazing lessons from my current boss is an incredible person who I really value and she always gives me a lot of really good advice um but never like in a really comprehensive way I think there are lots of little lessons I've taken from people um and also as bad as it might sound there are a lot of negative experiences I've had that have taught me how I don't want to be as a boss or how I don't want to be as a leader and I think at the time it can be really hard to experience negative situations like that but I'm really grateful for them because without it, you don't really understand who you want to be and kind of what those challenges could look like to the people who have to work for you. So yeah, I've, I've had a good mix um, and I've learned how to gravitate towards kind of the more empowering um, networks and people who are able to support you. How about, how about yourself personally? Do, do you, you see yourself as a, as a mentor to, to people, to some of your colleagues as well? Um, there are a couple of people that I have, like younger people who I've helped out with a few things. Um, mostly because I saw that they had a lot of energy and like I said, had the right values because they were doing it for the right reasons. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with pursuing a certain amount of self-interest. I think everybody is and it's kind of disingenuous to suggest otherwise, but really doing it because they believe in what they're doing. They believe in making an impact. They believe in helping people. Um, and then just passing on kind of the things that I've been given. So when I mentioned the Huffington Post contributor platform, I invited two of these people to join because I thought that it would be a great opportunity for them or supported people with opportunities that I had, again, where you can pass on kind of the nomination power. So being a World Economic Forum Global Shaper has been great for me in all the cities that I've lived in. It's been great for me to pursue some other opportunities like the National Student Leadership Forum. When I was younger, I went to that in Canberra and that was a great opportunity. I nominated somebody that I support professionally 
to do that. So I really try to pass on the opportunities that I've been given as much as I can. Uh, you have a clear passion of surrounding yourself with, uh, I guess, like-minded individuals as well. Have you, have you kind of learned the hard way as well? Did you ever experience being around people that didn't, I guess, uh, meet your core values? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's hard for people to curate your environment, especially when you're younger, when you're at school, mm-hmm. when you can't choose everybody around. You can't choose your family. You can't choose <laughs> your well, you can't, you can't choose your classmates at school, you can't choose your teachers. Um, so I think it's always hard when you come up against personalities that might really be different from yours. Not that people are malicious, but like some people can have very different ways of communicating or very different ways of expressing themselves that don't always work. So I'm a very blunt and direct and honest person, <laughs> which doesn't gel with everybody. Um, and I've learned to manage that a lot better and to be really mindful of where other people's boundaries are and why. Um, But there are some types of people that I don't get along with and I don't have to. And I guess it came with maturity (laughs) to realize that you don't have to like everybody, but it doesn't mean I wish them any ill will. It doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, say anything negative or be inflammatory or anything like that. But, you know, creating that distance so that Mm. you still stay comfortable and kind of that self-preservation has been something that I definitely learned the hard way, but I found a good balance with now. Beautiful. Now we're coming towards the end, but I've got one more question I want to ask you. And, you know, if someone listens to this podcast and says, I want to have a career just like yours, what would you say to them? I'd ask what that even means. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think for a lot of people as well, maybe, maybe more my experience than everybody's, but growing up in Australia, when I did, you get told that, you know, there are X, Y, Z jobs and you need to do these degrees to get those jobs. And I personally don't feel like that's very future proof, right? So a lot Mm. of industries that exist now or continue to exist or develop, we don't, we didn't know about, we didn't see coming, we don't see what's coming in the future. So I really just pursued skills that I wanted to have or things that I was interested in because I think passion can carry you a long way when you genuinely care about what you're doing and not just the idea of the thing or the money of the thing, but the day-to-day practice that goes super far. So I would just encourage anybody to do things that they enjoy, not things that they think sound good or things other people keep telling you to do because long-term that won't create any real satisfaction. And we, nobody knows what the opportunity is going to be in the future. And if they say they do, they're misguided. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, now, okay, that's all the time we've got. But if people want to follow you or want to follow GSMA, how can they do that? Uh, we use Twitter pretty actively. So on Twitter, I'm Kia, K-E-E-Y-A, hi, underscore Lee, L-E-E. Um, the GSMA is at GSMAM for D, my department anyway. Beautiful. Right, well, okay, thank you so much. I know it's late there in Georgia, but I uh, really appreciate your time and uh, really loved hearing your story and uh, really eager to, to share this with the alumni community. And uh, hopefully we can uh, talk with you in the near future. Thanks so much, Josh. I really appreciate you inviting me on.